Good evening and welcome to Colton Court, where we take a weekly look at the sports, business and legal issues that control the world of sports these days, a little behind the scene look in the, inside the games that we all see on TV and in person. My name is Gerald Colton. I'm your host for Colton Court, along with Tucker Colton. Good evening, Tucker. How you doing? Good evening, everyone. Tucker, as always, there's a ton of issues that went on again this week and every weekend. We're at that time of the year uh, in the summer where there's a little bit of law of the actual games where we just have baseball going on, but there's no football, basketball, baseball, at this, or football, basketball, or hockey at this point. But yet, they all manage to stay very much in the news, don't they? Yeah, and it's kind of funny how sometimes when there's games every day, there's not as much news off of the field as there is on the field. And then now everywhere you look, there's trade rumors or free agent signings, free agent opt-outs, stuff like that. Just stuff to keep the 24-hour news cycle going, even when we're 75 days past the end of the regular season for both both the NBA and NHL. Well, it's both newsworthy and their award shows and things like that, but it's also the stuff that really does control what ultimately happens when the seasons go on, because... We just had the draft in Major League Baseball, hockey, and basketball, and now we have the free agent period, free agency signing period, coming up in both basketball and hockey, and they run back-to-back, and does keep things pretty lively during the summer. Yeah, that's for sure, and I know the summer league stuff starting up, rookie camps, obviously the draft just happened, so players are going to report, start to work out, and then the rookie leagues start up first week of July, so only a little bit of time before, I know they're not official games, but games for fans like you and I and many other basketball fans to watch and watch the latest draft picks and even the undrafted guys, which we'll get into. A couple things we want to make sure we touch on today. We're going to be joined during this show by Dimitri Menegos, a renowned orthopedist who is a team physician for a lot of different clubs. And we're going to examine the relationship, which is very interesting, between the physician and the team. The, the, the name team physician is somewhat of a misnomer. And it raises a lot of different issues, both professionally from a medical standpoint, as well as from a business standpoint in representing players. Yeah, and I think just from an athlete's perspective, I mean, we all experience, we wake up one day and maybe we're sore in an area or maybe feel a little bit of pain. And these guys are going out there and putting their bodies on the line every single day, exerting all sorts of different forces on their body and different movements, quirky movements, stuff like that. And you really need a good team physician and staff of trainers, rehab guys, doctors, all that to make sure that your body's good to perform day in and day out. Well, we don't only have a team physician. We have specialists, of course, in all different areas. And we know you need a foot doctor, knee doctor, head doctor for sure, and all sorts of other body parts. So, so it's really complex, plus the fact that the physician has some ethical issues as far as representing the player or examining the player as his patient, yet having the relationship with the ball club who may have a different point of view about an injury or status to play than the player himself. Yeah, and on top of that, you have a guy, say a guy has an injury and then he goes for a second opinion with an outside doctor outside the organization. And there's these famous doctors that we know that perform surgeries, such as James Andrews with the Tommy John and uh, shoulder stuff. There's some guys out in Los Angeles who do the same. So just stuff like that. There's always there's a bunch of different doctors who have their hands on these different athletes. As a player agent, I can tell you that one of the most difficult issues I ever have to deal with are injuries because the player's always going to want to be out there, yet it sometimes is not in his best interest. The club always wants you out there if you can be, yet you can actually, by sort of sucking it up and playing when you shouldn't, you can really hurt your career because they then – 
judge you on the fact that your performance may be less than it would have been had you been 100% healthy. Right, and a player, these guys are so competitive that every day when they're out there, they're not going to tell anyone that they're really, really hurt. They're going to try and fight through stuff, play through stuff. There's guys that, in the NHL, the one guy, I think it was Bonino maybe, on the Penguins, played through a fractured tibia at one of the games. So it's stuff like that where you really don't know the, you don't have full disclosure on all the injury reports and what's truly going on with someone's body until you see hear it after the fact. We're also going to talk later with Everett Brown. Everett Brown has uh, was drafted out of Florida State in 2009. He's been a defensive end linebacker hybrid. We're going to touch on his career with him as well as the fact that he is currently attending a program that is sponsored by the NFLPA in conjunction with the NFL to get his executive MBA from the University of Miami. And he and a bunch of other NFL players, current and former, are down and about to graduate on uh, Friday from the University of Miami with MBAs, which is really quite a thing to undertake in your offseason during your playing career. Yeah, and that's one of the things that we've talked about so far on this show, and I'm sure we'll get into more, is that after the career, Everett had an awesome NFL career, but it was the average length. It was four or five years, and now he's got to figure out what he's going to do with the rest of his life because he's still in his 20s, and has his life's obviously not over, so he's got to find other ways to be productive in life. Well, not only is your life hopefully not over when he's not even 30 years old yet, but but the fact is that you are a former player a lot longer than you're a player. In the NFL, your average career is just over three years. So that means the average player has probably done his career somewhere around the age of 25, 26. Even if you exceed that average by a ton, you then still have hopefully another 60 years left on earth to live. So you will be an ex-player a lot longer than you're a player. And the entire time you're playing, you should probably be establishing yourself for that future life. Yeah, I meant earning life, to clarify, obviously. But another thing, even with yourself, you've been in the league for 20-plus years, and that's longer than pretty much any player who's ever played the game has been in the league. Obviously, some guys like Elway go on to front office roles and other guys. But even from an agent perspective, from a front office perspective, there's these GMs that have been executives their entire careers and their career in the NFL is way longer than a player. Yeah, it's really interesting. I've actually had some guys who really hoped to get into the league and did not make it, and they wound up starting getting jobs as scouts. One, one, a, guy, a guy named Kari Darlington out of Delaware State that I represented got him into camp, didn't make it. He realized once he got there that although he was an awfully good college football player, he wasn't good enough for NFL level. And that, that's how a lot of people realize it. I mean, it's the top – less than 1% that make it from college football to the NFL. And sometimes you, you sort of get that awakening when you actually go to an NFL camp and you see yourself with the other people you're competing against. But he immediately went into scouting with the Carolina Panthers and has become a lead executive in, in his mid-30s where other guys you know, who play or chase it for a long time sometimes have a tougher, tougher time in that transition. Yeah, it's definitely tough because there's always a new group of guys coming in, younger guys, maybe a little bit faster, maybe a little stronger. And Obviously, they don't, might not have the experience that you do and might not be able to do some of the things you do, but there's always going to be new guys coming in, especially at the highest levels, competing for those spots that you currently hold. Tucker, I also wanted later on, and, and we'll get to it a little bit after we have our guests on, but this weekend marked the 45th anniversary of Title IX, and Title IX was a real seminal changing point in the landscape of sports because that was back in 1972, the United States passed a law that required the funding for 
female and women's athletics at the college level to be the same or equal to men's athletics. They had to have the same number of teams, same number of scholarship opportunities and things like that. And it really changed sports forever. And we're still seeing the continuation and improvement on those effects 45 years later. Right, and that's something that I've really grown up with my whole life. Obviously, it's become more proactive going forward, but as far as through my early years and even through middle school and high school, everything, every boy's sport had a girl sport, more or less. Obviously, football didn't, and obviously no guys field hockey, but basketball, even the pool sports, the swimming, the water polo, stuff like that, track, field. So it's really played a part in my life, and I see the benefits of it. When I was growing up back in the 1920s or something like that, um, it's scary when your life becomes a history channel and all your music you grew up with is oldie station, but that's how it is. But when I was growing up, women's sports were really thought of in a lesser fashion to a large extent. It's, it was almost as though if a girl wanted to be involved in sports, she had to be a cheerleader, that kind of thing. And women's basketball at the high school level even was played Three, three on three on each side of the court. You had offensive and defensive sides, and you couldn't cross midcourt. And that was into the 70s. So when you see the level of play at you know, WNBA and college basketball and even the high school levels, you, it is meteoric how much it has improved in a short time. And Title IX had a lot to do with it. Yeah, and even beyond just the uh, level of play, you see all the time the power of social media. I know Diana Taurasi just set the record for WNBA individual points. And there's Kevin Durant, LeBron James, all these NBA superstars congratulating her and recognizing what she did and how great it was. And at some point, I want you to get into the story about when Rutgers won the championship, women's championship, but that could be later. Well, we'll talk about that later in the show because we always have our segment, uh, our Colton Court guilty, not guilty segment. And we're going to deal a little bit with Title IX issues and the comments made recently by John McEnroe, which were somewhat disparaging about women's sports, but realize that both public perception as well as the sports themselves still have a long way to go, and, we, and we're going to get into that. But one of the great things that a Title IX has brought is that I have so many friends that have had kids grow up in sports, and interestingly enough, my friends that have girls have had much more athletic success in college scholarships than my friends that have boys. And, you know, historically, the, the chauvinistic perspective might have been that it's a man's world and the sports world, but it really is not today. Yeah, and... I'm interested to see what it'll do going forward because there's just more and more push for equality in terms of gender of sport. And I know the WNBA has that ESPN deal, but no other women's sport really has a TV deal. I know the Women's Professional Soccer League is a thing, but I've never seen it on television before. So maybe going forward, that's something that gets picked up. Well, certainly women's uh, World Cup soccer has been a big deal in the past with television ratings. So there is quite a following for that. Anyway, um, let's touch on, before we get to our first guest, let's touch a little bit on undrafted players. Because in all sports, you go through the draft itself. And then you have a bunch of players that are signed as free agents that are not drafted. Obviously, much less chance to make a club, but still a very significant thing. Tuck, um, you've got some friends and some experience with some of that stuff. What has been your perception from them as to what the experience is when they're undrafted? Well, there's definitely a chip on their shoulder, and they're kind of out to prove everybody wrong. And the fact that they were there were in the NBA, 60 players taken ahead of them. So there's a big chip on their shoulder, and they want to show that they belong. Obviously, from an undrafted player standpoint, there's always that notion in the back of your head whenever you see someone, oh, he was drafted here, he was drafted here. 
and it forces you to level up your play and compete as hard as you can. Not that they wouldn't anyway, but you definitely want to prove that you belong and hopefully can show that you're just as good or even better than these guys that were drafted and chosen ahead of you. So in the NBA, they, they used to have a draft that went something about 18 rounds. It really did. And and in a sport that at that point had about had approximately 12 players on a roster, 18 draft picks was an awful lot to meld into a training camp. And through the years, they, they cut the rounds down further and further until they now have two rounds, and they've had that for a long time. We're going to get back to that later on, but we have on the line with us right now our first guest. It is renowned orthopedist Dimitri Menegos, who is calling us over from Lankano Lank Hospital. Good evening, Dimitri. Welcome to Colton Court. Good evening, Gerald. Thank you for having me on the show tonight. Really a pleasure speaking with you. Dimitri, there's a couple areas we want to touch on with you, and you're on with me and Tucker Colton. How are you doing? I want to get into, first of all, your background as a team physician. Why don't you fill our listeners in? I've served as the uh, team physician for the Philadelphia Soul Arena Football League team for uh, five years. I uh, worked with the uh, Philadelphia Freedoms, World Team Tennis, uh, Philadelphia Passion, and have covered numerous uh, college uh, events, including uh, Penn, Penn Athletics while in uh, training and Princeton University ice hockey as well as uh, Kane University football. I know you're pretty active. I know you're doing stuff right now with the Arena Football League as well, uh, as well as your past experience with the Soul, of which you have a championship ring that you support very nicely. Uh, some, some of the benefits. But, Dimitri, talk to me for a second about the difference in dealing with the average Joe or even weekend athlete versus professional athletes. Well, the biggest difference um, dealing with the professional athletes, obviously, is you do have to balance a few sides of the equation. Um, certainly, um, you have a, a, our, our biggest duty is towards the athlete themselves, uh, but obviously, you know, you have a duty towards the uh, team and the orthopedic group with, with which you're working with. So, Dimitri, I have represented athletes now for over a quarter century, and one of the toughest issues I always have are injuries because athletes know their bodies, they know what they can do, but they also try to play hurt a lot and things like that. And from a representation standpoint, guys can hurt their careers a lot both by doing damage to themselves and making their stock go down by not looking so good on film, by not playing at their at their best. The nature of the team physician has always been difficult for me as an agent because you as a physician have different ethical responsibilities. So explain to our listeners exactly how someone becomes a team physician and where in your responsibility lies. So certainly the role of the team physician over the last two, three decades has changed significantly. It used to be that the team physician uh, would be uh, hired by the team themselves at one point in time, and that evolved uh, as sponsorship money started coming into a lot of professional sports, that evolved into a marketing agreement where the you know the the specific professional sports team would enter into a marketing agreement with a hospital or orthopedic group um, for marketing in exchange for uh, medical and orthopedic services. Now these days, we're talking about millions of dollars of investment from the various orthopedic and sports medicine groups to market themselves as the official teams team physicians of a specific. Uh, sports teams, and certainly in the case of the NFL and NBA, we're talking literally millions of dollars. So orthopedic groups will market themselves. They'll sign a marketing agreement with a team, and you know, for all intents and purposes, they will be those official team physicians uh, for that team. Uh, so you know, it's kind of evolved from a model of teams hiring uh, physicians to 
you know, orthopedic groups that have the power to do so to, to market themselves with the team and provide the services for the team. So, you know, as far as becoming a team physician, it's really a process of obviously, you know, attaining a board certification in, in sports medicine, but also getting involved with an orthopedic and sports medicine group that does take uh, care of one of these uh, professional teams or even uh, college teams. Awesome. Hey, Demetri, it's Tucker. Uh, just a question. Hi, Tucker. How are you? I'm good. How are you? Good. So a question. A lot of what we talk about here is the financial and business aspect of sport. So having worked across a breadth of orga- organizations such as the Soul and then some college organizations, is there a difference with the athletes and how you kind of go about operating, whether they're college athletes or professional? Because we talk a lot about how the NCAA doesn't pay their players and doesn't want them to benefit in any way financially from playing. So is there kind of a caution, more cautious approach there? So at, at the end of the day, I, I mean, obviously as physicians, we need to do right by our, our patient, in this case, the, the, the athlete, whether the professional athlete or the student athlete. And then when we're talking about NCAA athletics, you know, breaking it down from Division One down to Division Three, there's a certain level of expectation. Um, the reality is at the at the different levels. So certainly you'll have that athlete that's uh, potentially going to go on and play professionally and have the, the student athlete that, you know, is finishing up their accounting degree and is going to go get a job in, in the real world. Um, but at the end of the day, you have to do right by the athlete, and you want to make sure that they're safe uh, at the end of the day. And certainly, Gerald hit on a point where a, a lot of athletes may want to play through an injury and may do more harm than good. They look bad on the field on top of that, maybe drops drops their value. So, you know, I think a lot of uh, how you approach these injuries also uh, comes down to rapport with, with your athlete as well. So, you know, you have to know the personality of the athlete. You have to develop a rapport with that athlete so that, you know, you can gauge you know, professionally, whether, you know, potentially uh, this is an injury that could keep someone out, could potentially do more harm to, than good, and you know how to approach uh, a specific uh, a specific injury. So I, I think a lot of it certainly does have to do with time spent in the training room at, at the practice facility and taking your time to really engage your athletes and really familiarize yourself with, with the different personalities that you may encounter throughout a team, whether at the professional level or at the college level. You know, at the end of the day, we certainly don't want to put any of our athletes in a situation where, you know, they they may end up harming themselves or doing more damage uh, than is necessary. So a lot of times, you know, it takes really engaging that athlete and explaining to them a lot of the pros and cons of dealing with their injury so that you make sure that you also look at the long-term plan for them and make sure that whatever you decide, to do in terms of treatment is in their best interest, not just in the short term, but in the long term as well. Dimitri, I've always been concerned about in representing players that the club could be exerting influence on the doctor. And you, you've spoken about the complex and rather um, deep economic relationship between club physician and club. I mean, these these physicians and, the, and their medical groups are now paying big money in order to be the club physician. So if the club exerts some pressure that, hey, we want this guy on the court, that's a pretty tough situation for a doctor, isn't it? It's certainly a tough situation because at the end of the day, you know, we've taken an oath as physicians to do uh, what's best for our, our athlete, 
what's best for our patient. Um, and, and there's always going to be pressures from, from different angles, whether it be the team ownership, uh, team staff, or the athlete themselves that, as we spoke, wants to get back out there and play. But at the end of the day, you know, despite that pressure, you really, as a team physician, you have to kind of be able to quarterback the situation, so to speak, and um, be able to set out the short and long-term benefits or, or drawbacks of sending a patient, uh, a patient or an athlete in uh, to participate given a specific injury. So, you know, it's certainly a very sensitive situation, and I think it's very important to learn how to quarterback that situation as the team physician so that you don't put your athlete at bigger risk of, of injury. You certainly. know, Dimitri, we are entitled, based on the collective bargain agreements in place in all the sports, as agents or as athletes, to be able to go out and get a second opinion. And the clubs sometimes get offended at that, but in representing somebody, I always find it's probably the prudent thing to do if ever you get anything that, that you've got maybe a little bit of a concern that the recommendations aren't in line with what you're feeling. Uh, my, my personal belief as far as that goes, and I'm going to have to absolutely agree with you, and, and that's something I kind of instill in my day-to-day practice. Certainly if someone is, is not 100% you know, satisfied um, with what you may be communicating to them at that time, I always, I always encourage a second opinion. That doesn't necessarily mean that that second opinion is going to be any different than the first, but I think a lot of times it could even kind of instill a, a sense of, you know, just, just a sense of, okay, this is what we're dealing with. You know, it kind of reaffirms what, the, what our physicians been been conveying to us. I, I, I'm all for it. I always encourage a second opinion if, if, if I sense that someone may need that reaffirmation. Or, you know, sometimes just getting a different set of eyes on a situation could set a new light on a situation as well. Dimitri, one of the things we've dealt with lately or seeing things that I had never seen in a large scale previously, but we're in a different age now of stress on the body, of, of awareness of things and stuff. Um, and we're seeing things such as minute or game restrictions. Have you ever had to deal with that? This is certainly something that, you know, is, is something that's newer in, in the sports world in terms of especially minute restrictions. Um, our, you know, our philosophy has always been, can they play, can they not play? And now we're kind of dealing with more, um, you know, we, we can have them play 28 minutes for a game as opposed to 48, for instance, or, you know, 35 minutes as opposed uh, to, to, to 60. And, you know, to be quite honest, that's a difficult situation because our athletes, certainly when they get out on the court, out on the field, out on the ice, they want to they want to ramp it up to 100 miles per hour and and go at it for 60 minutes or 48 minutes um, you know the 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 new minute restrictions and game restrictions uh that we're seeing are are certainly a newer wave in terms of um, treatment of athletes how do doctors come up with say 24 is okay but 28's not and things like that i i'm i'm personally of the belief that you know, if someone's good to go, they're good to go. Um, I don't know that I would necessarily release an athlete for half a game as opposed to a full game. I'd like to know that they're able to go uh, a full 60 minutes or a full, full 48 minutes before um, I decide that they're healthy enough to participate in, in a high-level uh, sporting event, a major league sporting event, for sure. I, I kind of struggle with the, with the idea that 
you know, some of these athletes uh, can play, but they can only play a certain number of minutes per game. My feeling is, you know, you put the athlete out when they're 100% ready, ready to go, and obviously there's different situations that we might look at later in the season where you might modify that thinking, but my feeling is your, your athlete should be as close to 100% ready to go for a full game if you're going to get them out on the field or out on the court. Do you agree more with the baseball uh, approach of where some teams will give pitchers a certain innings limit where once they get to that mark, that 150, 175, 200, whatever it may be, that they shut a pitcher down for the season to save the arm going forward? I, I, do, agree, I do agree more with that approach. I mean, what, what we're seeing you know, a, a lot with uh, baseball now and with a lot of the research that's being done is that, you know, we know that a certain number of pitches will cause a damage to, to a pitch, pitcher's arm, for instance. So that's, I think that's a little bit different approach as to what we're seeing in some of the other sports right now where we're putting minute restrictions. We do know that a certain number of throws will cause a certain amount of uh, stress to a pitcher's arm. So um, certainly those, the, those restrictions absolutely uh, make sense in, in baseball compared to some of the other sports. Dimitri, one of the things that has been troubling in either a progression or a digression, depending on how you look at it over my time representing athletes, is the whole awareness of concussions. And it's been a, a real landscape changer, and we've got a concussion litigation that just settled for NFL players. It's about to cause a whole lot of havoc in, in its distribution. But in dealing with concussions, obviously we've gotten – heightened awareness and research as to the effects and uh, protocols have been put in place. But talk for a second how hard that is for a physician. So it's absolutely tough um, on our part because, again, I think that, you know, uh, knowing your athlete, knowing the personality of your athlete can go a long way in terms of diagnosing, especially when you're in a game situation. You have thousands of people at the stadium or the arena. Uh, you have lights shining in your eyes. You have, you have an athlete that has maybe sustained a head injury, and you need, you need to diagnose them and see if, you know, if they've sustained a concussion or not. Um, and you, and you want to do all the right things and follow all the right protocols, but it also comes down to to knowing uh, your athlete as well in that sense. And certainly, you know, our our thought process on concussions has changed dramatically over the last couple decades, for sure. And I, you know, I have to say, a, a big driving force initially in the early 2000s uh, behind, you know, um, changing the the thought process on sports related concussion were actually the International Ice Hockey Federation. And uh, FIFA, uh, who organized the, were the two main organizers for the first international uh, conference on concussion in sport. And what they did there is they basically brought together world-renowned uh, neurologists, uh, neuropsychologists, sports medicine physicians uh, in Europe, and, and they sat down and, and they started cultivating the guidelines that we follow uh, for sports-related concussion. Now we've gotten to the point in 2017 where we've had five of these conferences and the International Olympic Committees uh, jumped on board with a lot of their uh, physicians and now we're getting a lot of lot more of the sports related organizations jumping on board with these conferences and over the course of these five conferences the the thinking on concussions in, in general has just changed dramatically from that first initial conference but it really was that first conference in the early 2000s that kind of got the ball rolling to make these uh, changes that we've gone through over the last uh, couple of decades. And obviously, there's so much still to learn in terms of concussion, in terms of management. We learn every day, and that's why we have these conferences every every couple of years. Um, 
but the reality of the situation is you know you you do the best you can given the situation and and you make sure you you follow the guidelines as closely as possible um you know we've gone from rating scales and concussions to realizing that you know what every concussion might be a little bit different these days every athlete's a little bit different and you really need to take your time to do a thorough evaluation go through all the protocols um, before making a, de- a determination but again that rapport with the athlete that knowing the athlete's personality can go a long long way obviously we're speaking with renowned orthopedist Dimitri Menegos on the nature of a role as a sports doctor, team doctor. Um, and we'll just spend a couple more minutes because I know you've got patients waiting to see you over at Lankinaw Hospital. But a couple a couple things I want to touch on before we go, and that is there has been really an outbreak in society in general, but sports specifically, of kind of abusive painkillers over the years. It has led to some really bad drug addictions for otherwise really healthy athletes. What has been your experience and feeling on that? And do you think there's any shot that the medical marijuana usage comes in vogue in sports at some point? My feeling is that obviously the the epidemic uh, that we're going through right now is uh, society-wide. Um, certainly, you know, as team physicians, we affo- avoid dispensing those uh, narcotics at this point in time as much as possible because we know they're much more detrimental uh, than any than anything else and what we're seeing a lot of times even in, in a lot of the research that's coming out right now even with for instance sports related rotator cuff shoulder surgeries for instance we're seeing that you know we are a lot better off just prescribing um, anti-inflammatory medications uh, for uh, post-op pain for instance uh, there, there really is a, a huge benefit that, if any benefit at all in prescribing these 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 pain medications but at the same time we do want to control an athlete's pain so we try to do that through you know rehabilitation techniques maybe some anti-inflammatory medications injection treatments so, so as to limit any use of uh, pain medication I certainly feel that at some point you know we really need to, to look at the use of medical marijuana um, in treating a pain obviously the the more modalities that you can bring into treating an athlete and treating their pain levels that doesn't involve you know potentially uh, life-threatening addictive medications I think the more modalities we can bring into treating those athletes the better off we're going to be in the long run Dimitri one last question we're going to let you run and that is you've you've invented along with some of your cohorts over at Lankinaw Hospital, what could be a game changer in Magnify? Why don't you tell our listeners really briefly what Magnify is? We're absolutely excited about Magnify. Um, just, to, just to give you a little bit of background, it's, it's the first, really the first compound on the market that's been scientifically proven in lab and two human studies now that were approved by the Scientific IRB Board to increase muscle strength in a very short period of time of about four weeks. And just to give you a very brief overview of how the the Magnify works is that it actually drives glucose into the muscle. So by driving glucose into the muscle, you're really powering up the the, uh, ATP production, the power production in that muscle, which allows that muscle uh, to to build up mass and strength and stamina. So it's it's a really exciting uh, new product. It's non-steroidal. It's non-hormonal. It's scientifically proven as opposed to pretty much everything else on the market right now that, that makes those claims. Um, and we're really excited about the science, the, the absolute science behind it, driving that glucose into the muscle, 
and building up the powerhouse of that muscle so that you can increase strength and stamina. We actually had a, um, in, in one of our football-related studies, we actually had a 5% increase in muscle strength in, in about four weeks. We're really excited about the potential uh, of the product moving forward. That's great, and we will talk to you about that in the future as that continues to uh, gain momentum and really be a game changer, hopefully across the board. Anyway, Dimitri, thank you so much for spending some time with us, giving us some insight into the nature of that relationship between the team physician and club and for your tremendous expertise. Have a great one. It's my pleasure. Take care. Thank you. That's Dimitri Menegos, really an excellent doctor as well as a wonderful guy, and I think he really broke down those issues very well. But we've got on the line with us now Everett Brown. Everett, we, as we change directions, is a linebacker defensive end, which has probably been a little bit of a problem, and we'll get into that in a second. But he's calling us down from the University of Miami where he is studying and about to conclude receiving his executive MBA. Welcome, Everett, to Colton Court. Hey, Jared, thanks for having me on. Everett, I appreciate it. I know you had to take a step out of class, didn't you? Yeah, I did. I did. We were on a, you know, on a pretty quick break, so I was able to get on the call. I'm uh, glad we were able to make it work. Well, thank you for joining us. I hope the teacher doesn't hold it against you. I'll, I'll, I'll give you a note. Anyway, you're, you're on with me. <laughs> that would work um, perfect. <laughs> you're on with myself and Tucker, who you know well. Tucker, say hello. How you doing, Everett? Good. How you doing, man? Good, man. Good to talk to you. Ever, we've got a few minutes to discuss a few things with you. The first thing I want to do is sort of trace your career. And for our listeners, you went to Florida State, came out pretty highly regarded. Talk to us about the pre-draft process and then being drafted by your hometown, Carolina Panthers. Yeah. So, uh, you know, I had a great uh, ratio junior year at Florida State. Um Finishing top three with sacks, uh, you know, like top three in the country with tackles for loss. So I um, had a, a lot of momentum coming out. Um, I went to the combine, you know, at the combine it was great. Um, I ended up having a, the fastest tenure of the defensive lineman. And I worked out for defensive line and uh, linebackers. So, you know, I had my work cut out at the combine. And, you know, we went into the pro day and had a good pro day and just did position drills. And, um uh, you know, I met with all the teams in the NFL um, at the Combine. They told me, hey, you know, 1 through 15. 15 is worst-case scenario. And, you know, we got to the draft day and, uh, you know, got to 15, and I was still on the board, still on the board. And there was one team in particular at the draft, and it was the Carolina Panthers. And they said, hey, Everett, if you're there in the draft and we can get you, we're going to take you. And I didn't believe it. Because I said, well, you got a second-round pick. You know, I'll be way gone, but I didn't say it like that, but. That was my thought process, and uh, you know, Carolina was, you know, it's an organization that they were. They traded, and they traded a pick, gave away a first round, to, um, picked me in the second round, and that's where I started my career. And that was pretty near where you'd grown up, right? Yeah, yeah. So I was able to go back home pretty much and play um, for a team in a city that was, you know, three hours away from where I grew up, and um, you know, because I went away to Florida State, which was nine hours, so. Being able to come back and play, you know, pretty much three hours away from where I grew up was playing at home for me. So, you know, it was great for the family and friends. So how was that kind of growing up a few hours from Charlotte then going out to Florida, spending a few years down there doing your thing and then coming back as a professional athlete? And I know you didn't get much of a break after that last season before you started <laughs> your pro ball. Yeah, no, it was uh, – you know, it was a cool experience. Like when I went away from home, you know, I, I actually took a took a took a beating from the hometown. 
because it was like, why are you leaving your home state? Why are you going to play for a team out of state? You know, why are you going to play for, quote-unquote, the best team in the ACC in football? So, you know, it was very tough for me to leave home. But, um, you know, my gut feeling, my parents were supportive. We lost him. All right, Everett, if you get a, get a chance to call right back, please do, because he's in the middle of the story, and there's a whole lot of areas I want to get to with him. We have Everett back on the line. Everett, you there? Yes, I'm here. Good. Sorry we lost you for a second. I was hoping maybe the teacher didn't pull you back in. Um, but you were, no, talk- no, we're <laughs> you were talking a little bit about going away for college and coming back. But I mentioned previously, and, and you even mentioned it in your workouts, coming into the league, they looked at you as both a D-end and a linebacker. I mean, one of the problems, or, and I shouldn't even say a problem, but it's nice to be versatile. And it's bad to be versatile. You've got different defenses in the NFL. In some defenses, you're an outside linebacker. In some defenses, you're a defensive lineman. Talk about how that has played out in your career. Well, you're right. I mean, it can be the best of both worlds. Um, But at the same time, you know, it can be a nightmare, too. Um, And and really, it's all about the scheme is what I found. Um, Because, you know, I'm looked at as an undersized defensive end. And then looked at as a bigger outside backer to where, um, you know, um, within a scheme, coaches feel like they can use me totally different than that at defensive end. And and it's a challenge sometimes because it's two totally different positions at the end of the day. Um, so coming up, you know, I was at a 4-3 defensive end, more of a wide nine technique, getting off the ball, effort, you know, speed was my game, change of direction. Um and then that's what I, you know, and that's what I really liked. And then when I went to Carolina, it was similar to that. Defense coordinator Ron Meeks, he had come from Indianapolis where he was had Dwight Freeney and Robert Mathis. So, you know, I felt like there was some similarity there with those guys' style of playing with mine. So I felt like it was a great match. And, um, you know, so I had an opportunity to play in that system for two years, and then I started transitioning to the outside linebacker when I went to San Diego. And it was, you know, it was great um, because it was still football, but at the same time it was very challenging. It's a whole other world. It was different terminology and you're moving in space and you're looking at different things so you know where a defensive end you're mastering you know your great get off um and then watching an offensive tackle and he you know an offensive tackle telling you your responsibility for that play as far as if it's run or pass now you're a linebacker standing up in the three four and now you have to look in the backfield at the wide receivers you have to know the formation that's on the field you have to look at the motion so it's a you know it's a lot more um i guess you would say thinking for the you know, like where there's a lot more thinking to do on the field and, you know, just putting your hand in the dirt and, you know, playing like a maniac. So, um, you know, it was great to play both. I mean, I think it definitely, you know, extended my career, but at the same time, uh, it would have been nice just to have one or the other. We are speaking to Everett Brown. Um, for full disclosure, Everett is my client. I'm I'm his agent, but he's also one of the finer human beings I've ever known on the planet. And, and Everett, I want to switch gears from speaking about your playing career to some of the other sides of you and the off the field stuff talk to our listeners Mm -hmm. about the program you're currently at the university of miami and where the nfl and nflpa have come together to provide good educational opportunities to really expand yourself while you're playing and beyond your career yeah so it's a great program here um an executive mba program here at university of miami and you know i was i was actually you know introduced to this program through a friend that you know went um, through the program before me, and you know, I, I felt like it was a great program to come into because of the structure. So it's sixteen; it's a sixteen-month program, 
and it works around the NFL schedule. So there will, there will not be, you know, a conflict in the schedules of classwork, school, and football. So that's what I really loved about it. So they made it, you know, very flexible for current and former players. Um, we've been the same class, but at, but also work around the NFL schedule. And I'll actually be finishing up. And, uh, you know, and it was, it's a fast pace. It's very similar to, as far as the class, it's very similar to training camp. Um, where you're getting a lot of information, you got to digest it, and then you got to go back and perform it when you take your test and you're doing homework and things like that. So, you know, it's very challenging, but, you know, I think it's a program that was really good for us that the NFL worked on and the NFL PA and the University of Miami to come up with a program that will put us in a you know, football environment, but with education for us to be able to learn. So how many people do you think went to play Florida State uh, football and went professional and then went back to get their MBA at University of Miami. How's that going to fare for this year's game when the two play each other? <laughs> <laughs> well, well, first of all, I can say this. I only, I only wore one helmet. <laughs> I, only put, I only put on one helmet, and that was the going in and goal. So, you know, when it comes to the games, that's a no-brainer there. I bleed, I bleed going in and goal. You know, but on the flip side of it, it was great, you know, having an opportunity to come to a university like Miami. You know, and I understand. I always I always wonder, like, you know, these guys that go to Miami and they play, they're all tight. You know, they're a tight group. You know, they're all friends. They talk to each other, you know. And, and I said, you know, why is that? And, you know, coming here and just doing this program, I figured it out because it, I mean, it's a private school, so the campus is smaller. But, you know, here they want, you know, professors – to students, they want that one-on-one relation, so it allows the students to want that one-on-one. So it's like a good community that they have here for school. So it's been a great experience. Great, Everett. And one of the things I always speak to my clients about, and, and I know you've realized through your own career, is that while you are playing, there are tremendous opportunities available to you, business, personal, and, and to really set yourself up for life after football. And we discuss it where you know, here you are, not even quite 30 years old, and a whole long life ahead of you. And um, we, you've been setting yourself up while you were in football to make good contacts and good business relationships. Yeah. So, so, you know, when I when I was released from Detroit, and it was 2012. I said, man, I feel like I need to start looking into something because I don't like having you know these drop periods where. You know, um, nothing's coming in as far as when you save money. You know, I don't know. I wanted to play. I still play football, but I said I want to look at something to where when I'm not playing football or it's the off season, I still have something generating and and you know and making money and 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 that was the business and that's where I wanted. I looked into being a franchisee um, with Tropical Smoothie Cafe in particular because um, I knew that you know going into it and being a franchisee is like having you know having a playbook. They would give me the blueprint to what I needed, and then it was up to me to be able to, you know, study the playbook and then put it to use. So, you know, it's been good, and that was one of the things that I used to, you know, help get my feet wet. But, you know, also just coming back here and getting an MBA uh, from the University of Miami, you know, it's what is – and this program is designed for us to um, work, you know, high up in a company in a management position or – you know, if you're an entrepreneur, then it's going to help you be able to grow your business and maximize your business. And that's what, uh, you know, getting my MBA has done is helped me be able to go back into the tropical smoothie and, you know, and do things right away. But also, you know, with Charlotte Luxury Rentals, uh, Luxury Exotic Rental Car Company, just taking things that I learned here and being able to apply it, but then also having the connection to be able to email and call um, to figure out something that I may not know or to talk to someone who's done it that can be a reference to me. So, 
um, definitely, you know, getting something off the field is, is key and is really important. And, uh, you know, if I could recommend, you know, getting into a business venture, I would say definitely get into it while you're playing. Don't wait to get in. And also you've been able to use your platform as a professional football player to give some back to the community as well with your own foundation. Why don't you talk about that for a second? Yeah, so we had Everett Brown Bag Foundation. And, um, you know, it started in 2011. And, you know, I started in my hometown in North Carolina, very small, but I wanted to start, you know, where I was from. And then I've grown it throughout the state of North Carolina and then Charlotte. Um, and, we, you know, we did a Mardi Gras ball benefiting uh, the Everett Brown Bag Foundation, which is fighting childhood obesity. But then we also partnered with No Kid Hungry, who I was able to work with and build that relationship with um, throughout the NFL. Um, you know, doing things with Fuel Up to Play 60 and, and No Kids Hungry. So, you know, it's just leveraging your contacts and, you know, and, and connecting the dots because they were there. Um, so, you know, through the Ever Brown Bag Foundation, we just try to put on, you know, events for kids and just getting them back to the basics, getting outside, running, jumping, uh, playing with one another, you know, putting down the technology and, and, and actually having those real conversations because uh, there's nothing else around them. So it forces to get back to the basics and just, you know, be kids, and um, you know, and I enjoy it too because I get to be a kid at the same time. And you're still a kid, but especially compared to me, <laughs> Everett. You're you're one of the very few people I know on the planet who's never tried alcohol, and I'm very impressed by that always, and by your discipline and and the up, upstanding human being you are. But talk about that for a second. That's a choice you made early on in your life, and you stood by it. Yeah, yeah. So you know, it's very. Uh, that's a very very. You know, I don't know, it's a subject that comes up a lot, you know, and it comes up anytime I'm hanging out with friends and, you know, just a group of people because, you know, when you're going out and having a good time, alcohol is going to be there. And, you know, it's always, hey, man, why don't you drink? Hey, do you want to drink? I'm like, no, I don't drink. Never? No, I never drink. And they say, why not? And, you know, I just, I never wanted to, I never wanted to try it. You know, I said, you know, it was around me, not, you know, I quote with my close family, but, you know, it was around. And I said, you know, I just never wanted to try it. You know, I said, I feel like I can get on the same level that you're on with alcohol. You know, I can get on that same level without it. So, uh, you know, it's just something I take pride in. But, you know, I still can go out with the guys and have a good time and hang out and, you know, be social and not be awkward. Um, they just prefer that I have like, at least you know, a, a, a bottle of water or something in my hand, don't be empty-handed. <laughs> Having been out with you many times, you are absolutely the life of the party with or without alcohol. And it's certainly, it is certainly not necessary for you to have a good time and people to enjoy your company. Everett, it has been such a pleasure speaking with you. I'll let you get back to class. Congratulations on the upcoming graduation and all the things you've accomplished in life. And thanks so much for joining us. Hey, thank you for having me on, and um, I look forward to the email with the um, note for the professor. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds good. Talk to you soon. <laughs> Thanks, buddy. That's Everett right, Brown, thanks. who has taken time to join us in Colton Court to discuss his life on and off the field and really one of the finer human beings I've ever had the pleasure of knowing. Tucker, we've got a little bit of time left on the show, and there's some other areas I want to touch on, but we, we were fortunate. Both Dimitri gave us great insight to the physician-team relationship. Everett gave us a lot of insight as to what it's like for him just coming through the league and now taking advantage of opportunities that are there to make his transition to post-football pretty smooth. Yeah, I think with Dimitri, one of the things that I've really been able to see, especially one of my better friends and roommates, Ethan Kotloff, going to med school in a few months, um, all these doctors nowadays specialize in a certain area. So for a team physician, they're obviously going to be able to handle any sort of injury or ache or pain, but 
there's always going to be a specialist for a certain area. So that's why these second opinions, and I didn't really get to touch on this after we had Everett right on the line. So I really think that that's a key for the second opinion is when you have three different elbow specialists. So when there's an elbow injury, you go, you could see all three. And maybe one sees it different than the other, sees it different than the last. And I think there's real value in that for these guys and their health going forward. And from an agent standpoint of what I do, it can be very difficult if your player knows he's hurt. And, and, and I said it earlier, and, and it's so true. Athletes know their bodies. They really do. And so a physician, a team physician might be having pressure. I know Dimitri didn't necessarily go there, and a, a good physician probably won't succumb to it. But it's a reality. A physician might get pressure from the team to clear a guy to play. So when I have a player telling me, geez, I really can't play, and the physician says otherwise, that second opinion that they're allowed to under the collective bargaining agreement is very, very important. Plus the fact now you get a battle of professionals sometimes that can be difficult and the club can hold against your player. Yeah, and I think there's bigger value with these doctors in high school and college sports. And I remember, I won't say any names, but in high school, player teammate of mine was injured in his chest and went to the trainer and they couldn't really detect what was wrong this was on the sideline during a scrimmage preseason scrimmage and he said no you're fine get back in there and the player was like no man I can't like I can't and he was like you seem fine checked into the ICU the next day and he didn't play his whole senior season so there's really so many different ways to see the same thing and with these bodies that are money makers and even not and even just ways to stay in school and compete for your school. There's so much money involved in this. It's really important to keep these guys healthy. Yeah, we've made so much evolution over time because I know the, the scenario you're speaking about where the trainer, the doctor saying, oh, don't be soft, get back in there, be tough, you know, buck it up, strap it up. You know, going back, and it's not all that long ago, it was around 20 years ago, where a an all-pro player named Corey Stringer died during training camp for the Minnesota Vikings. And it caused a lot of change in the rules. He literally... Uh, dehydrated and his body overheated and they couldn't get his body temperature down and not to be graphic or gross but his internal organs actually melted and Corey Stringer this 330 pound superstar athlete died because of the fact that the training camps were too tough and and the clubs weren't sensitive enough to the physical needs that they might have while practicing in 100 degree weather and it's changed over time it's gotten a lot lot better and the professionalism of the physicians has improved and the standards have improved. So we've gone in the right direction. It's never going to be perfect because the nature of sports are that injuries are going to happen and there's going to be sort of a competitive feeling between should the guy play, should the guy not play. Let's talk in these, in these next few minutes because we have a weekly feature that I want to get to are guilty or not guilty. And there's always a bunch of issues that are controversial during the week. And Myself, as the judge of Colton Court, gets to call whether they're guilty or not guilty. The first one was something we were discussing earlier, which is Title IX, the 45th anniversary of the groundbreaking law that required equal funding between female and male sports and really changed the landscape. And here we are almost a half century later, and you've seen the progression of female sports and athletes that has just been meteoric and, and great to see. John McEnroe one of the great tennis players of all time and a tennis commentator that's extremely well-respected came out and said that uh, Venus Williams, which Williams did she say? Whatever, with Trevor Williams. I think it was Serena. I think it was Serena who's the better of the two, but they're two, the two of the superstar tennis players of all time, the Serena, Serena Venus Williams sisters. Um, he said that if Serena were on the men's tour, she would be about 700th ranked player, which is quite a comment. Um, is that disrespectful is he wrong is he guilty or not guilty in colton court 
First of all, I think that's definitely disrespectful. Um, she plays women's tennis, and as much as you might want to compare the two, she doesn't play men's tennis. So to, as a thought or as a discussion at the bar with your buddies or over dinner, yeah, you can say that. But for someone of his stature and his prominence in the tennis world, for him to blast her like that where there's these big tournaments that I don't even know if they have 700 people in them, I just think that's very, very disrespectful. Um, on the matter of if he's wrong or not, I'm not sure. I don't watch enough tennis, but I think her serves don't measure up too far from the men's speed-wise. And I know she runs the court pretty well, so I don't. Um, I couldn't tell you whether she could compete or not. You know, to me, it was a, an unfortunate comment at this stage of where we've made progress to. I think you're right. Why are we even comparing them in the first place? And someone who really... Uh, is a big part of the game of tennis and the way it's perceived for him to make that kind of comment, I think was just unnecessary and uncalled for. But it raised and brought to mind two things, very very prominent things during my lifetime that that I, I, this touched on and brought to mind. One was the battle of the sexes, and it was about 1973-ish, maybe a little bit later, maybe closer to 76, but during the summer of, the, of that time period, a gentleman named Bobby Riggs, who was 55 years old at the time, challenged Billie Jean King, who was the best women's player at the time, to a tennis match in a battle of the sexes. Bobby Riggs had been a professional player, but he's now 55 years old. And they had this huge television event from the Houston Astrodome. And a television event was a big deal back then. This was a national televised thing. And Bobby Riggs, the whole time, was making fun of this. And, this, and the term male chauvinist pig kept being used. And it was a really big thing, women against men. And Billie Jean King kicked Bobby Riggs' butt. Now, the problem with it, of course, was that wasn't a an active men's tennis player playing. It was a 55-year-old man, and he looked like a 55-year-old man out there. But it was a really seminal moment that really helped women's tennis advance. Yeah, well, what I think in terms of cross-gender of sports is you see a sport like basketball where these guys are much bigger, stronger, and even faster than the women can shoot better. And that's no disrespect to the women. It's just a testament to how great these professional athletes in men's basketball are but in tennis I feel like there's sort of a more even playing field there's a limited amount of space and you're not physically hitting each other you're hitting a ball so if you're able to put a certain spin you're able to make a certain shot where they can't get to it's just stuff like that I feel like you can compete no matter what gender you are there was another thing that happened in the 70s and that was a transgender athlete of someone who transferred from being a man to a woman actually became a professional woman's tennis player. And it was very controversial, Dr. Renee Richards. And it was, you know, these are things that you probably will see more of going into the future. And it won't be um, probably looked at in the same way because we've, we're in such a different world where the, in 1976, Bruce Jenner and Wayne the Decathlon was the greatest male athlete, greatest athlete in the world. <laughs> and we see a totally different Jenner you know, yeah. 40 years later. So the world's changed a lot. And in that time period, I wish the enlightenment of people like John McEnroe had improved. Because I want to give a quick story that you, that you touched on earlier. Please. I, I attended Rutgers University, both undergraduate and for law school. And while I was there as an undergraduate student up in New Brunswick, the Rutgers Lady Knights basketball team won the national championship. Now, at that point, they were actually it was actually the AIAW was the governing body for women's athletics, not NCAA. And then NCAA came into vogue. So in 1982, when Rutgers won, they won the AIAW championship, although the NCAA was just starting out and then took over women's basketball after that. 
when they won the championship, that that team had been together for four years, and it was a really excellent team, and they were coached by Teresa Grentz of Immaculata fame, and who is a basketball Hall of Famer, and they just had a terrific, fundamentally sound team. I played intramural basketball at Rutgers like a lot of us other average athletes did, and they put together this charity game. It was the all-stars from the Rutgers Intramural League playing the Women's National Championship Lady Knights. And we were all just a bunch of hacks. And we didn't practice. We got together. And we played this national championship team that had been together for four years, basically. And we killed them. The score was about 100 to 60, something like that. And I couldn't believe the difference at that point. Now, fast forward. That's 35 years ago. Fast forward 35 years. And, and you've got... The, the, like the uh, Diane Tarowskis and all the the great players that are out there and Della Dovas and all the, all the great great women that have come on the scene since that time. Della Don, yeah, I'm giving I'm I'm butchering their names, but the, the fact is that the women's basketball and sports in general have improved so much. It's been they have improved exponentially in the time periods where men have improved, but not to the same degree. Yeah, I think there's a sense of. Not that they couldn't improve more, but they already progressed a lot to the point where your men have, where you're playing the women, where the women really hadn't been playing sport as long as men have. And they really, going forward, the, now these girls are playing youth basketball and AU teams and getting on the circuit. Then the high school games are more competitive and all the way up to the college and professional levels is much more competitive. And that's uh, the story I told about Rutgers. You know, that's only about 10 years removed from women playing three on three each side in high school. So it really has improved a lot in a short time. So for Colton Court, John McEnroe, guilty or not guilty for his comments? Guilty with an explanation. I won't sentence him to a huge thing because anything that brings enlightenment to that stuff is actually good for conversation. I just happen to take offense to what he said. One last quick thing. We had Lonzo Ball and his father, LeVar, in Colton Court a couple weeks ago. We were questioning his involvement with his son. Had it hurt him? Was he guilty? And I said, he was guilty. However, I was withholding sentence. Now, ironically, incredibly, Lonzo Ball was drafted second by the Los Angeles Lakers, just like his father claimed he would all along. I can't believe he wound up with the Lakers. Yeah, I think that with that whole saga, I think Magic Johnson is the one president GM that would take a shot or president I'm sorry would take a shot on that and that whole what could potentially be a fiasco or I saw an interview today where he said hopefully points to the there's an interview with Ball and Magic and he points to the rafters and says hopefully your number can be up there one day too well he said he expects his number for his first introduction at press conference that was pretty mighty pressure he was putting on somebody stepping in but so Coming back now, review, revisiting that issue and sentencing LeVar Ball, I'm going to give him a very, very small fine because so far I don't see the damage. We'll continue to monitor his career. But right now, the kid wound up second pick to his hometown Lakers just like he wanted to. He's in a situation where he could be the superstar, the face of that franchise for years to come, and it might have worked out great. And his dad made the drive very entertaining with those few interviews. Absolutely. Well, Tucker, thanks, as always, for hosting Colton Court with me. We got to hear from... Dimitri Menegos, local orthopedic surgeon, discussing team physician roles. We spoke with Everett Brown, and we discussed a lot of other areas of sports law and sports business. We are here on Wildfire Radio every Monday night from 5.15 to 6.15, and we will continue to explore different areas on a weekly basis. So thanks, everybody, for listening. I'm Gerald Colton with Tucker Colton saying, Courts Adjourned.